Uh, next, we'll hear from <clears throat> excuse me from Spencer Lee Lenfield, um, who's a doctoral student in the Compar uh, Department of Comparative Literature at Yale. Um, he holds an AD from Harvard uh, and a BA from Oxford, and he'll be speaking to us on etiquette and morality in the novel and online. I will actually, due to space, once I started writing, be speaking only about etiquette and morality in the novel, okay. specifically um, Austin and Proust. I, I ran out of words at a certain point and had to <laughs> dial back the ambition a little bit. Uh, so uh, this is entirely new material, so I'm very grateful for any feedback uh, and or correction. I'm sure that there are many, as uh, uh, people in philosophy departments endearingly say, um, all mistakes are my responsibility. <laughs> so accidental correctness usually came on someone else's shoulders. So. All right, so etiquette and ethics in Austin and Proust. The moral thinkers of the 18th century, uh, most notably Shaftesbury, occasionally found etiquette a worthwhile subject of inquiry. The study of ethics, particularly in the 20th century, has tended to dismiss etiquette as culturally relative and therefore irrelevant to the project of moral theory. There's a tendency to imagine etiquette as a set of norms governing how to set a dinner table or appropriate and inappropriate gestures on greeting and parting. After all, if the actions a particular culture's etiquette deems wrong are entirely acceptable in a different culture, those actions must not be important in anchoring sound moral theory. Uh, to take one famous example, in 1972, Philippa Foote pointed out that etiquette, uh, just like Kantian ethics, can be formulated as a system of hypothetical imperatives interlocking. Throughout that paper, However, etiquette constantly serves as a foil for morals, a normative enterprise of intrinsically lower stakes. Uh, somewhat more recently, we have begun to see uh, visions of ethics by scholars like um, Sarah Buss, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name uh, right, forgive me, Peter Johnson, uh, Karen Storr, more closely intertwined with etiquette. The transformations wrought by the internet over the past 20 years as well have also, in political theory, occasioned reconsideration of etiquette as manifested in norms of civility in the public sphere lately. On the side of literary studies, despite occasional memorable endorsements of attention to manners, like the famous essay in Trilling's Liberal Imagination, decades of analyses in the wake of Foucault, uh, most notably Nancy Armstrong's desire in domestic fiction springs to mind, tend to treat etiquette as a vehicle for repression and domination. And yet, uh, etiquette, uh, I think, is the principal terrain on which many people attempt to live out ethics on, uh, from day to day. Here, I would like to argue that the special status given to the representation of everyday life in the history of the novel affords particular uh, attention to situations where problems of etiquette simply are one and the same as moral problems. Moreover, by positioning such situations as key moments in the production of moral meaning in a given novel, narrative lends them clearer moral stakes by embedding these problems in the arcs of longer stories of personal development, so we just had a wonderful example of one, or social history. So in an essay this brief, compression is important, um, apologies for brevity due to time, I will use quickly as examples two scenes from works 
indisputably in the high tradition of the novel of manners, Austin's Emma and Proust's uh, Le Côté de Guermont. In the first, Mr. Knightley's rebuke to Emma's moment of witty rudeness leads the protagonist to moral reflection and reform. In the second, the narrator's friend, Bloch's uh, lack of etiquette at the salon of the Madame de Villeparisie marks him as a social outsider, while other guests at the same salon uh, disguise their anti-Semitism toward him under a veneer of insidious courtesy. In both cases, I want to tentatively suggest, we see that the symbolic language of etiquette may be wielded in harmony with or opposition to moral ends. Though it's tempting, and in some ways I think slightly accurate, to see this as a subordination of the norms of etiquette beneath the norms of morality, it is also, I think, an impetus to pay close attention to the application of moral theory under day-to-day regimes of social meaning. Put another way, one worthwhile point of intersection between the study of ethics and the study of the novel of manners is this. Our decisions under a certain code of etiquette simply are moral decisions and should be regarded as instances of, not foils to, moral decision-making. So, uh, Emma first. In the seventh chapter of the novel's third volume, most of the novel's principal characters have gone on a picnic to Box Hill, a local prospect some seven miles away from the town of Highbury. One of the characters, Frank Churchill, lightheartedly proposes a kind of game where everyone will say something, quote, very clever, be it prose or verse, or two things moderately clever, or three things very dull indeed, and Emma will judge which one is best. Miss Bates, who is a middle-aged unmarried woman who lives with her mother on the brink of financial hardship, but held to be kind and good company by genteel locals, despite her annoying habit of chattering interminably, answers the suggestion with an attempt at self-deprecation. Here we go. Um, I'll spare you my attempts at a British accent. Um, Unlike Sloppy and our mutual friend, I don't do the police in different voices. Oh, very well, exclaimed Miss Bates. Then I need not be uneasy. Three things very dull indeed. That will just do for me, you know. I shall be sure to say three dull things as soon as ever I open my mouth, shan't I? Looking round with the most good-humored dependence on everybody's assent. Do you not all think I shall? Emma could not resist. Ah, ma'am, but there may be a difficulty. Pardon me, but you will be limited as to number. Only three at once. Miss Bates, deceived by the mock ceremony of her manner, did not immediately catch her meaning. But, when it burst on her, it could not anger, though a slight blush showed that it could pain her. Ah, well, to be sure. Yes, I I see what she means, turning to Mr. Knightley, and I will try to hold my tongue. I must make myself very disagreeable, or she would not have said such a thing to an old friend. Okay, why is Emma's behavior rude? Why is it morally wrong? And how do these reasons intersect? Okay, it's generally rude to respond to a person's self-deprecation by affirming their good-humored self-criticism, no matter how true that criticism may be. It's also rude to make jokes or exercise one's wit upon a person who is right in front of you. In making that joke, Emma also needlessly intensifies Miss Bates' original joke about her own tiresomeness. The intensification is masked by deceit of ironic form. 
The statement is superficially polite, ma'am, pardon me, mock ceremony, but insulting in content. There's also the issue of class. In making this joke, Emma is punching down at her social inferior, a woman the community generally deems deserving of charity. Lastly, there is an inequality of endowment. Emma is witty, and Miss Bates chatters in place of wit. In both ways, Emma seems to be violating a standard of polite forbearance. Okay. What is then morally wrong here, apart from or on top of these breaches of etiquette? A consequentialist might say Emma is needlessly causing Miss Bates pain and unhappiness. Viewed deontologically, though Emma is telling a kind of truth, she is not doing it in a way that we would want all people to do on all such occasions. A virtue theorist might point out that the narrator says she could not resist, as if Emma is acquiescing to a vice out of weakness of will. Miss Bates's reaction seems to be delivered out loud, but sotto voce, with Mr. Knightley as her only listener. While the reader recognizes that Emma is being rude, her joke at Miss Bates's expense is delivered with such subtlety that none of the characters apart from Knightley and Miss Bates herself remark upon it. It's also worth noting here that the narrator very briefly focalizes through Knightley and Miss Bates, jumping from Emma. Um, active direction of attention is necessary for the moral effect here. She suffers no censure, and the other characters might not even have remarked upon it as a rudeness. Indeed, when Knightley reproaches her later, one of the key reasons for the wrongness of Emma's remarks is this, quote, to have you now in thoughtless spirits and the pride of the moment laugh at her, humble her, and before her niece, too, and before others, many of whom, certainly some, would be entirely guided by your treatment of her, end quote. This critique throws Emma into an episode of self-reproach unprecedented in her 21 years. Never, says the narrator, had she felt so agitated, mortified, grieved at any circumstance in her life. Uh, Sarah Buss, in a 1999 essay uh, titled Appearing Respectful, The Moral Significance of Manners, argues that there are two main ways in which etiquette can bear on morality. First, quote, Good manners not only inspire good morals, they do so by constructing a conception of human beings as objects of moral concern, end quote. So, by coaching us to be aware of the feelings of others, how other people interpret our actions toward themselves or toward others, as mediated by a cultural code, we learn to see agents as our equals in thought and feeling, deserving of equal respect. This leads Buss to her second point, Quote, polite behavior not only has important, important moral consequences, it has an essentially moral point. To treat people with respect is to act in a way that acknowledges their dignity and to act this way because they have dignity. Emma, in the wake of Knightley's critique, recognizes her breach of etiquette precisely as a failure with greater moral significance than she had initially realized. Her ensuing reflections clearly have moral import and are cast in moral terms. Quote, how could she have been so brutal, so cruel to Miss Bates? Later, at home, she thinks, she had been often remiss. Her conscience told her so. Remiss, perhaps, more in thought than fact, scornful, ungracious, but it should be so no more. End quote. Moral theory identifies why Emma's action is basically wrong. 
But the particular knowledge of etiquette in the society depicted is necessary in order to make sense of why Emma and Knightley attach so much importance to this act, which on the surface is not more obviously wrong than if Emma were to tell any servant or friend, you are boring. The details of social class, as well as ironic deference, however, tip the moral assessment from the merely hurtful to the needlessly cruel. We miss the point if we try to detach the norms of etiquette from the moral norms here. The full moral significance of the episode becomes intelligible only in light of contingent particulars. Here, etiquette ultimately serves to guide Emma into a sincere moral reflection and reform. The outcome of the use of etiquette in the Proust episode, however, is altogether different. No one learns anything. No one changes any behavior. Yet in a way similar to the Emma scene, the outward forms of politeness are manipulated to mitigate or mask behavior, which is both rude and wrong. The anti-Semitism of the guests toward the Jewish character Bloch, who is himself depicted as a boorish social climber. Uh, Bloch is frantically trying to defend his pro-Dreyfus position in a long, fraught conversation about the Dreyfus affair. He mistakenly looks for help from the Marquis d'Argencourt, a French diplomat in Belgium. Here is the passage. You, monsieur, said Bloch, returning, uh, turning to uh, the, uh, monsieur d'Argencourt, to whom he had been introduced with the rest of the party, are de Rizard, of course. Everyone is abroad. It is a question that concerns only the French themselves, don't you think? replied Monsieur d'Argencourt with that particular brand of insolence that consists in attributing to the other speaker an opinion which one knows full well he does not share because he has just expressed the contrary view. Bloch colored. Monsieur d'Argencourt smiled and looked round the room, and if his smile, as he directed it at the other guests, had a malicious intention in regard to Bloch, when it finally came to rest on the face of my friend, he tempered it with cordiality so that there should be no excuse for annoyance at the words just uttered, though the words remained no less cruel. For those of you who read French, here's the um, original. Politeness in this scene is narrated as a matter not of clear actions, but rather wordless inflections and facial expressions. The narrator uses the conditional, if his smile had a malicious intention, to convey the fleetingness and uncertainty around the conveyance of true meaning. The cruelty here lies in the direct communication of ethnic prejudice to one of its targets. Uh, D'Argencourt might have exercised forbearance, but has chosen not to do so. As in the Emma episode, part of the danger is that the opinion, once expressed, sets a standard, or worse, a model of conduct for others, which is exactly how the scene unfolds. Bloch appeals to yet another guest who even more pointedly uh, replies, quote, with an affected and mordant form of wit, do forgive me, monsieur, if I don't discuss uh, uh, Dreyfus with you. I make a point of discussing it only with Japhetics, end quote. Oh, no, no, not end quote. Everyone smiled, except Bloch. Now, end quote. Proust is depicting a misuse or perversion of etiquette against that end to which it, in theory, aspires, producing mutual comfort in uncomfortable situations, the ease of social friction despite differences of opinion. It is similar to how a character, uh, one thinks of Mr. Bulstrode in Eliot's Middlemarch, 
might talk himself into abetting another person's death on moral grounds, a kind of hollowness of form. Contemporary critics of etiquette often object to the invocation of etiquette or civility on precisely these grounds. Calls for politeness or civility often play directly into the hands of those who would use those norms to veil and hence protect forms of prejudice or hatred. The Proust episode shows, I think, that such instances fail not just by the standards of ethics or justice, but also the standards of etiquette itself. What we actually oppose is not etiquette or civility per se, but rather its misuse or perversion. Etiquette would seem to require not just that we adhere to polite forms as a way of keeping us from misbehavior, whether immoral or impolite, but that we act to some extent on genuinely polite motives. Benevolence, perhaps. Ethical theories of benevolence, of course, didn't survive much past the 18th century, but there's no reason why benevolence shouldn't have a place in explaining etiquette. Buss observes, quote, rules of politeness can be used to make people uncomfortable and even upset. In particular, precisely because rules of manners vary from group to group, they can be used to remind others that they are outsiders, as in this first passage. Were we to believe in a complete disjunction of etiquette and morality, it would raise the possibility that one might be able to act morally without being especially polite or unfailingly polite in form and yet immoral or vicious in practice. The former may be possible, but the latter seems implausible. Moral rightness seems necessary to true politeness in a way that, as Buss puts it, means that despite variation from culture to culture, there are non-conventional limits on what could possibly count as good manners. There is such a thing as a code of bad manners, and we would want to avoid having such a code. All right, to um, begin concluding. What role does fiction have in advancing this conversation, other than as a rich index of examples in conveniently fixed textual form? Put too simply, by way of conclusion, I think that reading closely, perhaps more closely than I have done here, the best accounts of breaches in or failures of etiquette directs our attention to those shades of unstated intention, body language, and verbal nuance that too often escape abstract treatment. By embedding such cases in a larger narrative context, the most insightful novels make clear the stakes in the moral life of an individual or society. In Austin's case, here, a failure of etiquette provides the catalyst by which her protagonist, Emma, can come to the self-chastening, which is the novel's moral pivot. In Proust's case, a perversion of etiquette exposes the moral rot of a society at a moment of crisis around ethnic prejudice. Reading for etiquette in the novel helps show, I hope, how etiquette is never merely what Hobbes memorably called small morals. They are rather the device by which most of us are most likely to manifest big morals from day to day. Thank you. <laughs>